Right now we're in the book of James, we're in chapter 4, if you'd like to open your Bible there or to navigate on your device. We're studying through the book of James, we find ourselves in chapter 4 at verse 13, and we're going to go into chapter 5, verse 6 this morning. The topic, James describes the folly of omitting God from your planning, and the title of our message, Planning Omissioners. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we approach your word, I pray that we would do so humbly, asking that you would divide between our soul and spirit, get right down deep inside of us and speak to us, Lord, about where we are at, where you'd like us to be, what's happening in our life, what's happening in our world. I pray that we would have a joy unspeakable and full of glory because we're saved, or if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, Father, that they would come to know Christ today and have their sins forgiven and be uh, born again. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. I'll admit the prescription drug ads on TV, they scare me. Drug makers are legally required to tell you their products might lead to a series of horrifying side effects up to and including death. They try to soften the effect by having a narrator off-camera read the list while they show pleasant images of people being helped by the drug. But the possibilities for harm are overwhelming. Uh, Abilify, taken for depression. Side effects include bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, coma or death, and trouble swallowing. That's the one that would get me right there. You had me at swallowing. Mirapex for restless leg syndrome. A lot of people have restless legs, and uh, this is a real thing. Side effects include hallucinations, as well as increased gambling, sexual, or other overpowering urges. Legs get moving, I guess, you know, so. Then there's, I think it's pronounced Ali, it's for weight loss. Side effects include an increased number of bowel movements. An urgent need to have them and an inability to control them. Thank you, I'll just stay fat. Ushers, don't mess with anybody that's on Abilify or whatever. If you hear sleep disturbances mentioned as a side effect, that's bad. I'm sorry, I have to laugh a minute more. All right, I'm better now. Sleep disturbances is code for the psychotic nightmares you suffer if you suddenly stop taking the drug without slowly weaning off of it. You know, they tell you, if you, you need to wean off of this, okay. Because if you don't, you're going to have psychotic nightmares. And uh, you don't want those. I've had one. Scary stuff, but not as scary as the ads for retirement. They let me know that I'm already several million dollars behind in securing a future that would include having a roof over my head and food on the table. AARP says you should aim to at least have $1 million to $3 million in the bank. Another way of approaching it is that your savings should amount to 10 to 12 times your current income. Outliving your money is a modern nightmare. No one has devised a hard and fast formula for just how much money you'll need in retirement because nobody knows how long you're going to live. We don't know if we should be planning financially for 20 years of post-retirement life or 30 Or maybe even 40. The National Institute on Aging says that, and I quote, the oldest old people age 85 or older are the fastest growing segment of the United States population. I'm 61. 
My dad died in his 90s, and my mom is still alive. She's 95. Scary. Before you either pat yourself on the back for your foresight and planning, or you chastise yourself for your lack of planning, you're going to want to hear what James has to say this morning. These verses are about planning and factoring in at all times if the Lord wills. We're going to explore what that means by organizing our thoughts around the following two points. Number one, your plans must always be submitted to the will of God. And number two, your plans must never be steered by the wealth of the world. And so let's take a look, first of all, at submitting our plans to the will of God. Salesmen like to say, plan your work, then work your plan. Sounds like great advice until you read what James has to say about planning that omits if the Lord wills. So verse 13, he says, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. James is using someone we might call a traveling salesman as an example of the planning we all do or we are encouraged to do in life. You don't have to be in sales to relate to planning. From the first time anyone ever asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up, you're prone to making future plans. There's pressure put on you to finish high school, go on to college, go beyond and get a a postgraduate degree. And there's nothing wrong with planning. The disciples and the apostles of Jesus made plans. For that matter, Jesus made plans. His incarnation followed a plan that had been determined in eternity past and that was revealed in the Garden of Eden. We like to say that God has a plan for our lives. James wasn't suggesting we do not plan. He was suggesting, as we'll see, that we, leave, that we sometimes leave God out of our plans to a disastrous effect. Before he says that, he suggests a reason why all planning apart from God is flawed. He says in verse 14, You don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You could die tomorrow. For that matter, you could die today. Now, you might conclude that James is a glass half empty kind of guy. But I'd say he was more of a glass overflowing guy. It isn't so much that he was saying you could die as he was suggesting you might finally experience eternal life. I mean, if you're a Christian and you read something like that and it says, you know, your life is a vapor, you think, wow, then let me vape out, you know, because I've got eternal life ahead of me. You're not on the brink of death. You're on the verge of really living by going home to be with Jesus. He was reminding born-again believers that we are more than physical beings living in a material world. We're spiritual and should therefore always take spiritual things into consideration before and while we are making any plans. Uh, James was giving us a last day on earth pep talk. Realizing today might be your last day on the earth and that tomorrow you'll be with Jesus, how should you plan? Or at least you'd see where it would affect your planning. You should plan according to the things that are the Lord's will. He says in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now, I think we all know that we shouldn't make plans on our own and then simply say, If the Lord wills, and think we're covered. It's not, a, it's not kind of a magic phrase. Lord, I'm going to go here and do this and do that, if you will. We don't want to say, Lord, these are my plans, and if you will something else, you're going to have to stop me. Which is essentially sometimes I think what we do. This is, this is kind of where I'm going, Lord, and 
If you don't want me to go there, you're going to have to close doors, which means you're going to have to blow up I-5 usually, you know, because our mind is already set on that direction. Now, how do I know God's will? That's one of the most asked questions by Christians. That's a good one. But the truth is, we already know a great deal about what God wills for us. I think James is telling us to remember the things God wills and to factor them into our planning. So what is it that God wills for us? Well, for one thing, He wills for you to be saved. He says that He will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. He also says He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3.9. And so the first question is, are you saved? If you're not... No amount of planning is going to be productive for you in the long run. We're here on this earth to determine where we will spend eternity. Will it be in heaven or will it be hell? Now, God doesn't just wish for you to be saved. He wills for you to witness to others so that they might be saved. He says that he sent his son into the world to seek and to save the lost. The Great Commission comes to mind as well as other verses that indicate he is sending you forth into the world as light and salt to sow the word of God, to be a saver of life to those who are being saved, and of death to those who are perishing. He says we're living epistles to be read by others to communicate the grace and love of our God and Savior. And so God wants you saved and he wants to use you as a witness to others. Then in the letter to the Ephesians, we get more insight into what the Lord wills. In Ephesians five seventeen and 18, we read, Therefore, do not be unwise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so it's God's will for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? He tells us in the next three verses. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And we don't have time to go through all this, but think of it as a gauge to measure where you are at with the Lord. Are you joy-filled? Are you thankful for all things? Are you in fellowship with other believers, submitting to one another? That is what God wills for you. Then we read this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so sexual purity, both yours and that of those you know, that's important to God. We remain physical beings, but are encouraged to control our impulses using the spiritual means that are available to us. This one is tough in our sex-saturated culture. It's easy to become desensitized to sexual immorality. And then finally, here's a difficult one regarding the will of God. God might want you to suffer. Twice the Apostle Peter mentions suffering according to the will of God. In one place he says, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Then in another place he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now those are a few things. They're big things that we must always factor into our plans. We're going to say more about them in a moment. But first, James adds in verse 16, But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The boast was what they were saying back in verse 13. 
They were boasting in their ironclad plans to go and establish themselves and make their fortune. It was arrogance to omit the Lord's will from those plans. Verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now this is a great standalone verse. Uh, By that I mean you can read it and memorize it and use it out of its immediate context because it's just a great truth. Sin isn't just doing things that we know to be wrong. It is not doing things that we know to be good and right. And that that adds a whole new dimension to uh, how we approach the Christian life. So I might not be doing anything that I can actually say, well, that's wrong, that's sinful. But many times I am sort of and really in sin because there are good things that I am refusing to do. At home, I may not mistreat my spouse, but do I treat her the way I should? If, as a husband, I don't love my wife as Jesus loves and, and loved the church, that's going to be sin. Because I know it is right, and I can do it in the empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so when I, when I look at my life and I think, well, I, you know, I, I go to work, and I provide, and I do this, and I do that, and you know, I, on, on some level I'm not really mistreating my wife, and then the Lord comes and He says, well, are you really sacrificing for her? Are you loving her the way I love you? Well, no. Well, you know that's to do good. And so that's sin in your life. As a wife, if you're not submitting to your husband as unto the Lord, that's sin. Because you know it is right and you can do it in the empowering and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so I think, especially if you've been Christian for a while, I mean, we all have a tendency to think, yeah, I'm not really in sin. I'm, I'm, I've got, you know, thanks to God and the Holy Spirit and all, I've, I've got some things under control. And then God would open up your eyes and say, okay, how about good things that you could be doing that you're not doing? And then you think, oh... <laughs> Just when I thought I had arrived, God opens the door to this whole new... And, and what a joy to, to, to know that there, are, there is good that I can do, that I'm empowered to do. There are good works that I can discover that God has for me. Uh, and so we need to be open to that sense. Verse 17 can stand alone, but let's look at it in context. James is saying, if you don't seek to do good... By factoring what you already know to be the Lord's will in to all your plans, it is sin. And so the Lord's revealed His will. I need to factor that into any and all of my plans. And if I don't, then I'm in sin. Maybe a few examples of factoring in the Lord's help might, or will might help. We saw that witnessing to others is the Lord's will. When you really believe it, it's going to affect your plans for the future. Let me exaggerate for a minute. If your plans are to live somewhere totally isolated, practically as a hermit, that may not be the Lord's will because you will have no one to share the gospel with. And so that's an extreme example, but you know, let's say you're just, you, you've had it with human society and you just want to go live like a hermit somewhere and live off the land and all that. And there's, you know, maybe you're excited about that. You're the kind of person that watches alone on the History Channel and you think, man, I, I could last three years in Patagonia all by myself with just an, a knife and a, you know, a piece of floss or something like that. That's great. But in terms of making plans, God might be whispering to you, And who are you going to share my son with? And and how do you serve me by doing that when it's really all about you? And so you would have to factor in 
God's will. On a less extreme scale, it being the Lord's will that you share Him with others, is going to affect job and career choices. It's going to affect decisions about promotions within your profession. You need to submit your plans to the question, will this increase or decrease my witness to others? You have to know that the devil is always going to be trying to destroy you in these areas. He knows what the will of God is for your life. And so he is always going to give you choices uh, through those who he has taken captive to do his will that will get you away from your walk with the Lord, away from sharing Christ with people. And so we need to be on guard with this. And, and we literally just ask yourself, okay, this opportunity, this decision, how does this affect my witness to others? Does it enhance it? Does it hinder it? Where do I see this going? We saw that it's the Lord's will you be filled with the Holy Spirit. Thus you will want to plan in such a way that you're not quenching the Holy Spirit or grieving Him. And you will want to be engaging in those activities that please Him, like fellowship and Bible reading and prayer. When we read that section in Ephesians, it said that we were to you know, sing and submit to one another. It indicated that there was a whole litany of things that we do as a body of believers together. It's God's will you be pure sexually. If your plans involve sex before marriage or marrying a non-believer, those are never the Lord's will. Uh, this is some, we, we see this all the time. Christians living together, Christian engaged to or getting married to a non-believer when it's clearly God's will that that not take place in your life. And so this is an omission. It's a serious omission that Christians make, uh, you know, and still wondering, oh, I wonder what God's will is for my life. Well, here's, here's part of it right here. Finally, you may need to suffer in the will of God. How might this affect planning? Well, let's say you're being persecuted or otherwise mistreated at work. It might be that your plan is to get out of suffering by, say, quitting your job. That, however, may not be the Lord's will. He may want you to endure the suffering in the power of the Spirit as a witness to your employer and to your fellow employees. Hey, I'm just like you. The minute a trial hits, I'm looking for the door. You know, where is the secret trap door? And and what's the word I have to say to have the chicken drop so I can get out of here? You know, that kind of a thing. And so, uh, and a lot, then you realize... Well, maybe God has this situation all in hand and I'm supposed to be a witness. I'm supposed to be a testimony. I'm supposed to endure patiently. Uh, And so you have to factor in that God, sometimes it is in the will of God that you suffer for righteousness sake. So it's the Lord's will you be saved, that you be a witness to others, that you be filled with his Holy Spirit, that you live a pure life, especially sexually within biblical boundaries, and that you suffer with supernatural endurance when called upon. Always factor those into your plans. We can use the man in verse 13 as an example. He said, today or tomorrow I will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. So today or tomorrow, that tells us that it may be God's will we go immediately. It may be God's will that we wait. He knows what divine appointments he has set up for us. And so filled with the Spirit, I pray and seek his wisdom on when or if I should go somewhere. Also on where to go, to such and such a city. Do you think you're always going to be sent by God where you want to go? Are you dragging God to your next desired destination? 
It isn't true that God will always send you where you don't want to go. God has a bad reputation for that. And it's, and it's not deserved. Don't tell God you never go to Africa. Ten minutes later, you'll be on a plane to Africa. People say this all the time. That God always sends you to the most horrible place. It, that's not true. But He doesn't always send you to the best place either. Right? He sends you to the place where He wants you to be. Spiritually speaking, that's best for you and others. And it may not be where you would choose based on geography and climate. I've told you before, I love living here. I love Hanford. I love California. But I didn't get out a map and say, where's my ideal city? I know, Hanford. It's got everything a city could want. Especially 30 years ago when I moved here. It's got a mall anchored by thrifty drug. Wow. This is my kind of... You know, if I, could, if I could go anywhere, it'd be Hanford. I don't know anybody who says that. Right? But God had a work to do in my life and in our lives. And so, you know, we can't always just go where we want to go. Uh, you know, I gave up trying to be in Anaheim, closer to Disneyland. and keep writing them letters saying they need a chaplain, but they think Mickey is saved, I guess. But anyway... So that's just, that's just part of it. The traveling salesman said he was going to spend a year there. So he must have calculated how long it would take to make the money he wanted. But couldn't God grant him success sooner? Or couldn't circumstances be such that his gains turned into losses? He needed to make money, that's true, but he was being sent for other reasons, to be a witness, and therefore his time there was more in God's hands. And finally, he said he'd buy and sell and make a profit. What if God asked him to donate all of his profit? It wouldn't make sense from a material standpoint, but can you envision a scenario where God asks you to give everything away, to leave everything? Well, sure you can, or you should, because after all, we are stewards of God's resources that he gives us to use to further his gospel on the earth. If you read any devotional literature at all, there are always stories about people who just, you know, all of a sudden call of God on their life or something happened and they gave everything away and, and, they, and you, you finish those stories and think, oh Lord, that's, so, that's glorious, that's wonderful, what a great God you are. Just don't ever do that to me. I know you'd never do that to me because I'm just a nobody in Hanford, California. Yeah, I, I'm not... Please, Lord, I don't, have, I don't even have a million yet for retirement, and you're asking me to give this away? No, please. And, and so that's the deal. And I hear something else that's the Lord's will. He's conforming you into the image of Jesus. He's begun a good work in you, a spiritual work. He said he'll complete it. One day you're going to be like his son. As we factor his will into all of our plans, we cooperate with God's ultimate plan for us. His will sets godly, loving parameters, or what we sometimes call boundaries, within which to grow and be conformed into the image of Christ. I saw a two-panel cartoon the other day that illustrates biblical boundaries. A runner is coming up on what looks to be a hurdle. As he gets ready to jump it, a spectator yells, It's not a hurdle, it's a guardrail. And sure enough, in the second panel, you'll see that it's in fact a guardrail, and by jumping over it, the runner is going to plummet into the valley below. And that's a good picture of, of what God's boundaries are like. We always want to get beyond them. We, we want to break free of them. Uh, but really, on the other side of them is disaster. 
And some of us have experienced that personally as we've blown out God's boundaries in different areas of our life and experienced the ruin of that. And so God's boundaries expressed by His will, they're always guardrails to keep you safe. Now, second, in verse, uh, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5, your plans must never be steered by the wealth of the world. There was a man who had worked all of his life. He'd saved all of his money. He was a miser when it came to his money. He loved money more than just about anything. And just before he died, he said to his wife, Now listen, when I die, I want you to take all my money and place it in the casket with me. I want to take all my money with me to the afterlife. And he actually got his wife to promise him with all her heart that when he died, she would put all the money in the casket with him. One day he died, stretched out in the casket, the wife sitting there in black next to her best friend. When they finished the ceremony, just before the undertakers got ready to close the casket, the wife said, wait a minute. She had with her a shoebox. She came over with the shoebox and placed it in the casket. And then the undertakers locked the casket and rolled it away for burial. Her friend said, I hope you weren't crazy enough to put all that money in there with that stingy old man. She answered, yes, I promised. I'm a good Christian. I can't lie. I promised him that I was going to put that money in that casket with him. You mean to tell me you put every cent of his money in the casket with him? I sure did, said the wife. I got it all together, put it into my account, wrote him a check. (laughs) James has been telling us that spiritual things are more important than material things. In these verses, he exposes the folly of preferring material things over things that are spiritual. And they're pretty straightforward. They don't need a whole lot of commentary. So verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. James, not a politically correct guy at all, you know. Could you imagine in a counseling session? Hey, you know, Gene... Your riches are going to eat your flesh like fire. Oh, really? Thank you for that. I'll, uh, can you be a little bit more tender in the way you approach me? No. James mentions the last days. We have the knowledge that the history of the world is following a divine plan and timeline. God is working out a plan of redemption, heading toward the destruction of the current earth and heavens, and the creation of new ones that will go forward into eternity. It doesn't make sense to focus on this earth and its temporary riches. Even before God's destruction of things, garments can be moth-eaten and gold and silver corroded. James might have mentioned getting robbed as well. In the movies, there's always that one greedy guy who tries to carry out the treasure while the mine or the cave is collapsing. He always gets crushed as a witness against greed. It's the fate of all non-believing materialists. Indeed, verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Seboeth. These guys used every means to build their wealth, even illegal means like fraud. It's amazing what you can justify to yourself if you don't factor in the Lord. The cries of their oppressed workers reach the Lord of, and it literally means the Lord of hosts. It describes vast, powerful armies of angels in heaven. In the Old Testament, God dispatched a single angel who killed 185,000 Assyrian warriors overnight. Imagine what a host of angels could accomplish for good. We struggle with this. 
These inequities and other sufferings are known to God. He has the means to overcome them. Still, he waits. Tragedies aside for a moment, we want him to wait. His waiting is a good thing, even if bad things happen while he waits. His waiting is called his long-suffering. In his long-suffering, he waits because he is not willing that anyone should perish, but that they would come to know him and inherit eternal life. Eternal damnation is so severe that God allows terrible suffering to continue on this earth in this timeline before he says enough. If the Lord had resurrected and raptured the church five years ago, or ten years ago, or twenty years ago, where would you be in terms of your relationship with God? His long-suffering waited, and you are here saved. And so verse 5, you've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You've fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. When the wicked wealthy indulge themselves, they think of it as pleasurable, but God says they're like cattle being fattened up for a slaughter. Verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The just is a reference to believers. That's because we are justified by faith in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, he declares that you are righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. He sees you just as if you'd never sinned. Because they know it can be in the Lord's will that they suffer for Him, the just endure patiently their mistreatment. The wicked wealthy go as far exploiting them as they can, even murdering them from time to time. James is giving, of course, an extreme example of the disparity between the wicked and the witnesses. Nevertheless, you don't want to be among the wicked no matter how much you might suffer for your witness. This extreme example is a good one. Here's a guy who's so wealthy, he just keeps fattening himself up. All he does is just sit there and eat and drink and make merry and kill righteous people. And still you look at that and say, I'll stand with the righteous because this is so temporary and what I will have is eternal. And so it's a, it's a great example. There's just simply too much at stake. Now, since we're on the subject of God's will you still might be wondering, how do I know his specific will for things, like which job to take? I'd answer by saying you first need to be walking in God's will in the ways that he's revealed. Why would he reveal more of his will for you if you refuse to follow what he's already shown you? I mean, this might not always be the case, but I think generally the Lord is saying, hey, do what I've already told you to do, and then things will become clear. Abraham went to Bethel. God told him to go there. He found that there was a famine there. And so on his own, he went down to Egypt, created a lot of problems for himself, comes back to Bethel, and then God starts talking to him again. While he was in, Beth- while he was in Egypt, there wasn't really communication going on. And so God is wanting him to go to where you're supposed to be, do what you're supposed to be doing, and then we'll continue this walk. Then it comes down to cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus within which you start to know how he speaks to you. People like to joke about communication or the lack of it in marriage. You might remember that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. It was a best-selling secular book because it promised to close the communication gap between men and women. I found that the longer we've been married, the more Pam and I understand each other. And, and know each other and finish each other's sentences and things like that. And many of you would have that same testimony. 
It, it, it happens over time as you spend time with a person. And it's just going to be like that with Jesus. Because he's a real person who's risen from the dead in a genuine relationship with you. He knows you in and out, th- uh, through and through. He knows your thoughts before you think them, but you don't know him that well. But over time, you get to know him through his word and by his spirit and as you walk with him and in your circumstances of your life until you get to be more and more sure of his voice and the way he's speaking to you. He might speak to you through the word or by the influences of the spirit or through circumstances in which doors are opened or closed or through other believers or through visions or dreams or similes. Nevertheless, it requires some time. And that's what's nice about God. He's revealed a bunch of his will to you. You you don't have to wonder what his will is in some of these huge, big areas of life. But in the smaller minutia of your life, you you really do need to get to know the Lord on a personal, day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis in order to be able to make these decisions. One commentator suggested that, and I quote, The key is wanting God's will, not your own. If I can honestly say, and it's hard to honestly say this, if I can honestly say I want God's will and not my own, then he will reveal more and more and more of his will to me. Take that one area that we ended with, suffering in the will of God. I don't really want to suffer anymore in the will of God or not in the will of God. I'm done suffering as far as I'm concerned. And so that's a tough one for me and probably for you. I mean, to really, in my heart, think, Lord, if it's your will, then that's what I want because it must be best for me. And that's, it's a tough thing to say. But when I want God's will more than my will, then he'll reveal it. It'll be a beautiful thing. And so start there and then listen carefully. Let's pray.